This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Several contemporary Christian philosophers have offered a variety of models to help make sense of the doctrine of the Trinity. Today, I'm joined by Dr. William Lane Craig to assess those models, and in the process, he'll offer a defense of his own model. So, hello, Dr. Craig. Hi, Jordan. Good to be with you. Thank you for for coming on. All right, so I've actually, just as a little bit of a background, I've done two previous interviews on the doctrine of the Trinity. So we're going to dive in. We we won't spend as much time on the first half of your chapter uh, that you wrote wrote in uh, Christian Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview. So I'm going to begin by asking you, uh, what are the two broad models of the Trinity on offer? Typically, theologians distinguish between social models of the Trinity and so-called Latin models of the Trinity. Those would be the two broad categorizations. All right. And what church fathers or theologians do social Trinitarians typically look to as their champions? These would typically be the so-called Cappadocian church fathers like Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory Nazianzus, and Basel. Uh, Cappadocia is a region uh, in modern-day Turkey. Um, And so these folks were in the eastern end of the Roman Empire, Greek-speaking theologians, and these Cappadocian church fathers are um, ancestors of modern uh, Greek Orthodox Christianity. Now, you mentioned Gregory of Nyssa. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is he one of these Cappadocian church fathers? Yes. Now, what was, if you can, can you try to summarize his view on the Trinity? Well, the emphasis of the social models of the Trinity is that in the Trinity, you have three distinct centers of self-consciousness, uh, three persons which who can each say, I, I am the Father, I am the Son, I am the Holy Spirit. And so there is a robust sense of personal identity on these social models. And Gregory would explain the Trinity on the analogy uh, human nature, which is one, uh, it is universal, uh, but it is exemplified by three different men, say Peter, James, and John. Uh, so in that case, you have this one universal essence that they each exemplify as three individual persons. Okay. Well, what about the so-called anti-social Trinitarians? What church fathers or theologians are appealed to here? Well, I um, refer to this as anti-social Trinitarianism, tongue-in-cheek. It's usually called Latin Trinitarianism, and uh, its heroes are generally taken to be St. Augustine, though I think that's incorrect, Uh, but preeminently Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval Uh, theologian who, uh, of course, wrote in Latin. Uh, 
Um, and uh, Brian Leftow, uh, Christian philosopher, wrote an article called Anti-Social Trinitarianism. And what he meant by that was against social Trinitarianism, was a critique. But I thought, well, this is actually a much better label for this view than Latin Trinitarianism, because some of the Latin theologians like Hillary and Tertullian were social Trinitarians. They, they didn't accept this other view. Um, and so uh, I adopted this rather tongue-in-cheek uh, to characterize these models of the Trinity. And these antisocial models, as it were, emphasize the unity of God rather than the distinctness of the persons. Um, and sometimes they almost seem on the verge of veering into Unitarianism, frankly, because the concept of person that is featured in these antisocial models is not very robust, frankly. Uh, it's analogous to the difference between I and me. When I am the subject, I refer to myself as I, but when I think of myself and objectify myself, I refer to myself as me. And yet, obviously, the difference between I and me is not between two different persons. And yet, that's the analogy that's often used in these antisocial Trinitarian models. Um, the difference between God as subject, as the knower, and God as the object, as God as known, or God as loving and God as beloved. Um, and I think you can see that is not as robust a view of personhood as what you have in the social models. All right. So you offered a kind of summary there of, of those views. Now, in the chapter that we're aiming to summarize in Philosophical Foundations, you spend a little time summarizing Aquinas's view, and then you offer a critique of it. So can you just briefly uh, summarize his view and then mention yes. some of the challenges facing the Thomistic antisocial Trinitarianism? On Thomas's view, the divine persons are identified with relations that subsist in God. For example, the relation of paternity is God the Father, and the relation of filiation is God the Son. So what the persons of the Trinity are uh, is subsisting relations within the one God. And my criticism of that and the criticism of most people is that this is just inadequate as an understanding of what it is to be a person. Uh, a relation, if it exists at all, is an abstract object. A relation doesn't know anything, doesn't do anything, doesn't love anyone, it doesn't will anything. And so to think of the persons of the Godhead as just subsisting relations within God seems um, just too weak a notion to capture the idea of three distinct persons. And when you're critiquing this Thomistic model, you also mentioned something about divine simplicity. Yes. Do you want to say anything about that here? Sure. Um, 
Thomas has a very strong view of divine simplicity that God transcends the relationship between a substance and its properties, or even between a substance and the relations in which it stands. So it's part of Thomas's doctrine that God, as a perfectly simple being, stands in no real relations to creatures. He doesn't really stand in the relation of creatures of causing, loving, or knowing creatures. Rather, those relations just our mind. Uh, the real relation that exists is there's a relation in us of being loved by, being created by, being known by God, but there is no real relation in God. Now, how that is reconcilable with maintaining that the Trinitarian persons are subsisting relations within God is inexplicable, even on a Thomistic model. This is not a critique launched from outside Thomism. There's nothing in Thomism itself that it would explain how God, as a simple being, could, could have these sorts of real subsisting relations in God, which are the Trinitarian persons. All right, so now I want to shift to some some more contemporary work on the Trinity. So Brian Leftow has identified three types of social Trinitarianism. And the first is functional monotheism. So what is this view? And then what are the challenges facing it? This is the view that Brian uses to describe uh, or tribute to Richard Swinburne, uh, a great Christian philosopher. Swinburne says that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead um, and that they function harmoniously together. They are, they will the same thing, they know the same thing, they are perfectly in harmony. And in virtue of that perfect harmony, um, they function as one being. And so the unity of the three persons is to be found in their functioning uh, as one being. Okay, so that's the view. What are the challenges facing it? Well, Lechtow charges that this is nothing more than a thinly veiled polytheism. And I think he's right in that. Uh, to say that you have three persons who um, simply cooperate and are in harmony in what they will and know and do, doesn't provide any basis for saying that they are one being. This would just be three gods who harmoniously cooperate and function with each other. And so there isn't in harmonious functioning a solid ontological basis for saying that what we have here um, are three gods. Uh, rather, for what we have here is one God rather than three gods. Yes. Yeah, I, I've i listened to one of Swinburne's lectures on uh, YouTube where he defends his model, and it struck me the same way. It just sounded like tritheism. Yes. This uh, is especially it, so when you think that for Swinburne, God the Father causes God mm -hmm. the Son to exist. 
Uh, and Leftow charges rightly again, I think, that this is no different than creation out of nothing, uh, in which God creates and sustains um, creaturely uh, entities. Uh, and if that's the relation of the Son to the Father, it's hard to see how this, uh, how the Son is not merely a creature. Mm-hmm. And that's not even to say that at some point in time, God created the Son, even if, if he's eternally holding right. him in being, it still doesn't solve anything, I think. Um, no, I think you're right, Jordan. It, it, it would be an example of creatio ex nihilo, but without a temporal beginning. Mm-hmm. A sort of, as you say, conservation in being of the Son. And as Leftow says, that's the same way God conserves the world in being. Okay, so that was functional monotheism. So now I want to shift to this second view that Leftow describes, and he calls this group mind monotheism. So what is this view? This is a very contemporary and interesting view based upon um, brain studies. The, the suggestion is that there could be sort of sub-minds, which are not fully conscious, but which cooperate with each other to form a single fully conscious mind. Uh, And in brain surgery, uh, surgeons have found that when treating certain diseases like epilepsy, they have done surgery in which they've separated the two hemispheres of the brain. And what sometimes happens is it seems as though two minds emerge in that person, each mind associated with one hemisphere of the brain. And so this would be a sort of group mind in which these sub-minds cooperate with each other to form this overarching mind. And the suggestion would be that in an analogous way in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are sub-minds which uh, come to expression somehow in this group mind, which is God. Okay, so that's the view. Now, what are the challenges facing it? Well, I think the challenge is to make sense of the relationship between the sub-minds and the overarching group mind. Um, If the group mind is a consciousness, a person, in addition to the three sub-minds, then what you've got is not a trinity, you've got a quaternity. You've got four persons in the Godhead then. So what you would have to say is that somehow when the three persons come to consciousness, that the group mind uh, dissolves away or or perhaps becomes one of the, the three, so that now you only have three instead of four minds. But then once again, it's hard to see how this is different from polytheism, from tritheism. Where's the unity now if the group mind dissolves? All you've got left are the three sub-minds now fully conscious as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there doesn't seem to be any basis for the unity of these three persons. Okay. 
Well, now I want to mention Leftow's, uh You're going to describe the view first, but Trinity monotheism. Um, so that's, d- describe this view first. Well, this view would just be to say that God is the Trinity. That if you want to know who God is, God is that being, which is the Trinity. Plain and simple. All right. So Leftow has a dilemma here for Mm -hmm. Trinity monotheism, and I'm going to put it on the screen. And maybe you can just walk us through this. I I took this image from your book. Yes. So explain this this challenge that uh, Leftow has. Here Leftow lays out a number of alternatives, and he wants to show that all of them lead to unacceptable conclusions. So with respect to Trinity monotheism, the first choice you have to make is, is the Trinity a fourth instance of the divine nature, or is the Trinity not a fourth instance of the divine nature? Well, you can't say that the Trinity is a fourth instance of the divine nature because it follows then that there are four gods. Um, If the Trinity exemplifies the divine nature, then it is itself a God in addition to the three persons of the Trinity, and so there are four gods. And so that alternative is unacceptable. So you've got to say that the Trinity is not a fourth instance of the divine nature. So the next question then you face is, well, is the Trinity divine or is it not divine? Well, you can't say that the Trinity is not divine because that would just be to abandon Trinity monotheism, which identifies the Trinity as God. If you say God is the Trinity, well, then obviously the Trinity is divine. So you've got to go with the alternative that the Trinity is divine. Now here, there are two alternatives. Either there's only one way to be divine, or there are two ways to be divine. Now, if you say that there's only one way to be divine, then either only the Trinity is God and the persons are not divine, or else only the persons are divine and the Trinity is not divine. So if there's only one way to be divine, uh, you're going to have to deny either the divinity of the Trinity or the divinity of the persons, and that is unacceptable. So you've got to say there's more than one way to be divine. There are uh, at least two ways to be divine. One would be by being an instance of the divine nature, and then there would be some other way to be divine. And this is said to lead to Plantingian Arianism. Uh, That is to say, a sort of Arian... um, heresy that is ascribed to uh, Plantinga. Now, one asks, well, what is this? Uh, What's the matter with Plantingian Arianism? And here Leftow doesn't explain this very well. He just says that Plantingian Arianism is the view that there's more than one way to be divine. Well, right, but what's the matter with that? Well, he seems to suggest that it depreciates the divinity of the persons because the persons aren't actually instances or exemplars of the divine nature. Uh, 
And so they have a kind of watered down divinity, a sort of denatured divinity in contrast to the Trinity itself. And this is unacceptable. So all of the alternatives are said to be unacceptable. With respect to that Plantingian Arianism, I was going to ask two clarifying questions. The first, would this be at least maybe what Leftow's thinking as a type of subordinationism where some there's going to be a there's going to be a person there that's subordinate in some way. They're they're not fully divine in the kind of yeah. something like that. Yes, yeah, something like that. It's not classical subordinationism, but it's something like that. It's a sort of inferior status for the persons of the Trinity. Not that one is subordinate to another, but all three of them are mm-hmm. inferior deities, uh, or, or in their deity, they're inferior. And then the second clarifying question, when it says Plantingian, which Plantinga are we talking about here? I can't remember anymore. I don't know whether this is Al Plantinga or Cornelius Plantinga. I would have to check my notes. Uh, it's been a while since I wrote that chapter, and I don't remember which brother is being I, indicted here as an Arian. I think it's Cornelius. Uh-huh, okay. I'm getting that from Mike Ray's chapter in the Oxford Handbook uh, on Philosophical Theology. I've never seen anything Plan- Alvin Plantinga has said about the Trinity. Maybe he said this, but... But I do remember Cornelius planning as saying something like this. Yes, that jogs my memory as well. I think that's quite right. All right. Uh, yeah, so one of the philosophers that helps my channel out, Justin Mooney, confirmed it's Cornelius planning it. Okay. Justin's published a couple of papers on the Trinity that may come up here in a minute. Okay, so now that we've laid out Leftow's uh, dilemma for Trinity monotheism, what is your preferred solution to his dilemma? Well, of these choices, I would pick Trinity monotheism, and I would say that there's more than one way to be divine. And um, Leptow, his, his allegation that the divinity of the persons is somehow watered down or, or inferior would only be true if there were only one way to be divine. If there were but one way to be divine, then he would be correct that this is then a watered-down divinity. But if there is really more than one way to be divine, then there's nothing watered down about the divinity of the persons. And so I explore some ways in the chapter uh, about how it might be the case that there's another way uh, to be divine that is... um, Uh, exemplified by the members of the Trinity. Okay, so let's explore that here. And go ahead and lay out how can there be more than one way of being divine? Okay. Well, what occurred to me, Jordan, as I thought about this problem, is a cat. Um, If you think about a cat, one way to be a cat would be to exemplify the cat nature, to be an instance of a cat. and, and that would be a way to be feline. You would exemplify the feline nature. But there's another way to be feline, uh, and that would be to be a part of a cat. For example, a cat's DNA is indisputably and fully feline. A cat's skeleton 
is fully and indisputably feline. Um, if a biologist were to analyze the genome of a certain organism, he could uh, indisputably identify this as being feline based upon the DNA. Uh, and so this would be an example of where it, it, there would be more than one way to be feline. One would be by exemplifying the cat nature, being a cat. The other would be by being a part of a cat. And that might be applicable to the Trinity. There's a sense in which the members of the Trinity are parts of God, if the Trinity is God, because certainly the Father is not the whole Godhead. The Father doesn't exhaust the Godhead. There's also the Son and the Spirit. So even if these aren't parts in the usual sense, such as a cat's skeleton or a cat's legs or his hair, um, nevertheless, there's a sense in which the members of the Trinity are not the full Godhead, each one, um, but are parts of the Trinity and therefore could be divine in that sense. If I understand your view correctly, the divinity of the Father, the divinity of the Son, the divinity of the Holy Spirit are derivative of the whole, which is the Trinity. So the Trinity is divine. And because the Father is a part of that Trinity, he derives his divinity from that. Is that fair? Well, or not? I, I, I suppose it could be interpreted that way, though I don't think I've ever said that. Um, I don't think, for example, I've ever said that the felinity of a cat's DNA is derivative. Maybe it is, but I don't remember affirming that. And I don't remember saying that the divinity of the three persons is derivative, though maybe that's right. I, I don't recall having taken a position on that. Okay. I think maybe that's how I'm interpreting you. So I'm not saying mm. you said that as I read you, it that that would be how I'd have to interpret it. But uh -huh. um, when I think about the relations between parts and wholes, I'm thinking of the the whole can have a property that's um, derived from the parts, and the parts could have a property derived from the whole. Well, that that can be the case, but it seems to me that parts could have properties that are underived from the whole too. In fact, I, I, I would say that uh, there are parts like that in the Trinity and maybe divinity is something like that. I, I mean, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, but perhaps a person could say that in virtue of there being three divine persons, the Trinity is divine. I don't know. Um, I, I would I would tend to just think that these are different ways to be divine and that you don't have to have relations of derivation between them. All right. Thanks for clarifying that. So you're answering my questions as we go, too. Uh, OK, so you've laid out that um, that kind of, that kind of solution to Leftow's dilemma where there's two types of divinity. And now what I want to ask you is. Do you have an analogy to illustrate your view of the Trinity? No, I do not. I, I think that people have misunderstood 
the illustrations that I use in the chapter as a springboard for arriving at a final model, but these are not meant to be analogies. I frankly, Jordan, don't see the usefulness of analogies to the Trinity. I think that the quest for analogies to the Trinity is misguided and unnecessary. I think what one should do is simply state one's view. And so the view that I state in the end is that God is a spiritual substance or soul who possesses three sets of rational faculties, each sufficient for personhood. So God is the soul, and he has three sets of cognitive faculties. And how did you say that last part? I want to each, make sure. Each one is sufficient for personhood. Each one is sufficient for self-consciousness, um, will, knowledge, uh, intentionality. Uh, the same sort of faculties that you and I have that go to make up our personhood. We are persons, each of us, because we have a set of rational faculties that are sufficient for personhood, that would include things like self-consciousness and freedom of the will and intentionality. And my suggestion is the rather simple one that um, God is a soul that is so richly endowed that he has three sets of rational faculties, each sufficient for personhood rather than a single set of such faculties. Let me ask you a clarifying question about this. This is a question that occurred to me as I read your chapter. So when I'm thinking of cognitive faculties, I'm thinking as I'm thinking of them as powers. So the the power to they are not persons. The faculties themselves are not the persons. Right. The faculties are these powers used by a person. Would you say that's a fair characterization of a cognitive faculty? I don't know. Um, I'm borrowing here the language that J.P. Moreland uses to talk about cognitive faculties or the soul's equipment. For example, he differentiates between the souls of human beings and the souls of lower animals, um, like a turtle or a horse or a cat. He believes that these animals also have souls, but these souls are not as richly endowed in their cognitive faculties as our human soul, which has rationality, self-consciousness, uh, intentionality, and so forth. And so um, I'm just thinking, well, why think that we have only a single set of such faculties? Why couldn't, uh, why couldn't a God have three uh, sets of such faculties? So there would be, if you want to use the language of powers, there would be three sets of such powers, each one sufficient for these properties that I've mentioned. Yes. The reason I was asking that was if, if I'm understanding cognitive faculties correctly and thinking them in terms, thinking of them in terms of powers or capacities, mm -hmm. the power is not a person. The capacity no. is not a person. It's something had by or possessed by a person. Right. And in this case, it would be that the thing that possesses that power would be the soul of God. 
the soul that is God. The soul, yes, the soul that is God. And this is where my confusion comes in. So these three sets of powers or capacities are possessed by the soul that is God. Yes. I'm not sure where the father enters into that picture or the son. I have powers. I have capacities and I have this one soul. Yeah. I'm not. Help me understand. Where does the father and the son come into that picture? The persons. Well, these these faculties are sufficient for personhood. If you have rationality, self-consciousness, freedom of the will and intentionality, then that is sufficient for personhood. So I would say that God is a tri-personal being. Just as you and I are unipersonal beings, God is a soul so richly endowed with cognitive faculties that he's tri-personal. So he okay. has three, three centers of self-consciousness, intentionality, and will, which is a social Trinitarian model. All right. So um, let me continue on here. So I want to think about some objections to Trinity monotheism. Now, let me let me ask first, what are some of the you know, major objections you've seen to your view? I haven't seen a lot of interaction with it, frankly, Jordan. Uh, Dan Howard Snyder wrote a very uh, sharp critique of the view, um, to which then I have subsequently responded. Uh, and I thought that his objections were largely misconceived. Uh, he attacked the analogy that I used of uh, Kerberos, the mythological dog guarding the gates of Hades, whom I imagined to have three centers of self-consciousness, um, but was nevertheless one dog. Um, oh, there you go. Okay. And he, he attacked that uh, illustration. But as I say, uh, for me, that was but a springboard to get us thinking about how you could have one being that has three centers of self-consciousness. And I, I didn't think that in the end, um, his objections to the final model were persuasive. Yes. Yeah, so a thought occurred to me as well uh, that, that I found out later he had objected to your view. And it has to do with that analogy. Uh, I was right. And remember, twins. Re remember, again, I want to say right. I'm not presenting it as an analogy. Yeah. Yeah. It's and a I appreciate springboard. That. Right. Right. Yeah. I okay. appreciate you clarifying that because a lot of people, I think, think you think that is the analogy. But for clarity, you're saying that is not an analogy to the Trinity. No. All right. Very good. Very good. Okay. So um, let me move to a different type of objection. So this one uh, comes from Michael Ray. And I interviewed him a few weeks ago now on his constitutional model of the Trinity. And <clears throat> let's see if I can share my screen. That way uh, I can read what he said. Um, just a second here. Uh, 
Okay, and I'll zoom in so that large enough. Okay. So his first objection is that you cannot affirm the opening line of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, because on your view, God is a fundamentally different thing from the Father. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about that objection? Well, I think this is a, a, a powerful objection, um, but I think we need to read the first article of the creed in context. What it says in context is, we believe in one God, the Father, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, God from God, true God from true God. So there is not an attempt here to differentiate between uh, Christ and the Father in terms of their godhood. Rather, what the Nicene Creed reflects here is the language of the New Testament. In the New Testament, the expression ha theos, God, almost inevitably refers to the Father. That's just the way the words ha theos is used. And that's why you don't have very many verses, there are only a few, where Christ is referred to as ha-theos, uh, as God. Rather, the New Testament authors didn't want to identify Christ with the Father. They understood that Christ was not the Father. And so since the Father is ha-theos, they had to get a different title for Jesus, and so they adopted the title Curios, Lord. And they would take Old Testament verses about the Lord, which is the name of God in the Old Testament, and they would apply those verses to Christ. So Paul, for example, says to the Corinthians, for us, there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And then they would be described in exactly the same terms. So the attempt to differentiate between Christ as Lord and the Father as God is simply a terminological distinction in the New Testament to prevent confusion of the persons of the Trinity. But both of them are affirmed to be fully God, fully divine, and that's what my model attempts to do as well. Very good. Okay, now his second objection was, and I'll go ahead and highlight this here so the audience can focus on what I'm reading. The second objection is that you cannot affirm the homoousion, and I'll let you explain what that is in a second. You cannot affirm the homoousion clause in the same creed, the Nicene Creed, unless you reject the idea that there is exactly one divine nature. And uh, here's the quote. Uh, from him explaining this objection. It'll add uh, enough detail, I think, to understand it. So the only viable interpretations of the creedal claim that the Son is homoousion with the Father have it that the Son is either numerically the same substance as the Father or of the same nature as the Father. Natures were also referred to as substances, hence being consubstantial with something might just mean having the same nature. 
The former, of course, they reject. That would be numerically the same substance. Uh, the latter they accept, but in accepting it, they posit effectively two divine natures, one genuine, possessed only by God, the other derivative, but still divine. Oh. So there's that term derivative. Maybe I picked it up from yeah. him. Derivative, yeah, but so. still divine, possessed by the two persons. Of course, they could deny that the derivative nature is a divine nature, but in so doing, they seem to strip the persons of their divinity which would conflict with other parts of the Nicene and Constantinopolitan creeds. That's a difficult word. If all this is right, then part whole Trinitarianism is in serious trouble, at least if its proponents intend, as Moreland and Craig do, to be offering a view that respects Nicene orthodoxy. Okay, so what do you think about that objection? Well, I think, don't, I mean, don't you agree with me? This is just a rehearsal of Brian Leptow's objection to planting Arianism. It's just to repeat that if there's only one way to be divine, namely being an instance of the divine nature, then the divinity of the persons is somehow inferior or um, cheapened or denatured. And I I reject that. I, I think there's more than one way to be divine. As I say, again, by analogy, the DNA of a cat is fully and unambiguously feline. There is nothing inferior or denatured about the felinity of a cat's DNA, even though the DNA is not an instance of the cat nature. So I think that Mike is just repeating here Leftow's um, allegation that on Trinity monotheism, the divinity of the persons is somehow diminished. All right. So now what I want you to do, let me shift back to this view. Uh, this will be my final question for you. And then I want to go to the viewers questions. So okay. what is your critique of Dr. Ray's constitutional model? And for those watching just to, uh, give you some background. A few weeks ago, I interviewed Mike Ray and he, he defended his constitutional model. So you can go check that video out. Go ahead and, and present what your critique would be. Well, before I can offer a criticism, I think we need to try to explain to our viewers what this model is, because I find it almost incomprehensible. It's just so difficult to understand. What uh, Mike Ray and Jeff Brower want to is that in the Trinity, we have numerical sameness of the persons, but without identity. And they want to use as an analogy um, the way in which material objects can be the same glob of matter and yet be different objects. So for example, one of the illustrations they would use would be um, a statue made out of a block of marble. The block of marble and the statue, they would say are not identical because they have different properties, right? The block of marble and say Michelangelo's David are 
different objects, but they would say, or rather they're not identical objects, but they would say they are the same piece of marble. They're the same matter. And so you have here one material object, but there is non-identical things that are made out of that object. And so in their view, the divine essence is a sort of stuff out of which the persons are made in the way that the block of marble is the stuff out of which the statue is made. Now, I find this Aristotelian idea that you can have numerical sameness, but without, uh, without identity to be really, really difficult in and of itself. I, I, I'm not even persuaded that's right for material objects. But when you then try to extend this analogy to God, who is an immaterial object, it seems to me that there is just nothing that is analogous to the stuff out of which the statue is made. The divine essence is not a sort of stuff that the persons are made out of. And so it seems to me that it's wholly disanalogous. And the church fathers leading up to Nicaea made this very plain. They said, we should not think of the relation between the divine substance and the persons to be like the relation between a, a, a bunch of bronze, a glob, a mass of bronze, and some coins that have been made out of the bronze. They, they explicitly rejected that idea. So I, I think that the whole analogy is misconceived in the first place because there isn't anything analogous to the stuff out of which God is made. But moreover, I would say, Jordan, it doesn't explain how the three persons can be simultaneously the same thing. Um, how could the block of marble be simultaneously the David by Michelangelo, the Venus de Milo, and the winged victory of Samothrace? Those are three different statues, and yet I don't see how they could possibly be made out of the same block of marble, how they could be the same thing. And yet the three persons of the Trinity are just as different from each other as are those three statues. Each person is its own center of self-consciousness. It has a first-person perspective, which is impenetrable to the other persons. The three persons are as different from each other as those three statues are. And so it is baffling to me how those three persons could be um, numerically the same when they're so non-identical. I, I don't understand how that that would work. So I I don't find the model to be helpful at all in understanding how you can have three persons uh, who are each God. So those three statues, they can't possibly be the same numerical substance because they aren't the same numerical substance, right? They're made right. out of three different blocks of marble. Yeah, that's right. Couldn't, it wouldn't, I don't think his model would be characterized either as you take a block of marble and you shape it into the David. And then you take that same block of marble and you shape it into 
one of the other statues you mentioned. So it's not like you're just using the same stuff. And at one point in time, you're shaping it into this. And then at a different point in time, he wants to say it's numerically the same substance, I think simultaneously. Now his, oh, yeah. his analogy right. is, his analogy is a statue. That's also a pillar oh. at the same, at the same time. Okay. So, and I had a picture that I put up in my interview. If you wanted to add a third thing, I, I thought about it. And I thought maybe you could throw in a fountain. Sometimes I see statues that are fountains. So you have something that's oh. now he doesn't add the fountain part. I've just, yeah. To get three to to make this analogous, um, so then you have something that is simultaneous, and and these are different than one another. They're not the same thing, because he talks about how you could uh, eat away all the marble inside, such that it couldn't bear any weight. Now it's still a statue because it maintains its shape, but it can't bear any weight, so it's no longer a pillar. So right, the pillar isn't right. the statue. And you can do the same thing with the statue. Chisel away the face and everything. Now it's just a pillar. So you could have the pillar without the statue. Right. So they're not identical. Uh, and yet they're numerically the same substance. Now that's his view. Yeah. I understand your objection about um, what's what exactly is this analogy supposed to relate to with God since he's immaterial. I've got this material substance. So what's supposed to be the immaterial thing? I don't know. What do you think about this proposal? It's um, it's the soul of God. Oh, that was the language you used before. <laughs> uh, well, God doesn't have a soul, right? I mean, uh, to talk about having a soul, it has to be distinct from something, and God doesn't have a body. So, yeah, maybe I should rephrase that. What do you think about? So, on your view, on your model, yeah. God is a soul. He right. just is that, right? Yeah, He's an immaterial substance. Yeah, yeah. So, on this view, it would be you have this soul, and we're calling that God. That is the analogy to the material substance. And that soul can simultaneously and uh, be numerically identical to all three persons. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I just don't understand how that's possible. Yeah. Well, I want to get to the I want to get to the viewers time. So I won't take up. We've only got you for okay. about 10 more minutes. So thank all you right. so much for uh, dialoguing with sure. me. All right. So. Um, Let's see if you will. I've, I've got one question prepared um, from from a viewer that couldn't watch live, but type your question in. But just put the word question at the very beginning. Otherwise, it's going to be hard for me to find. So um, one person prior to the interview asked uh, if you agree with Richard Swinburne on this. Richard Swinburne says that um, if all we had was the Bible. So that's all we've got. We would not be able to derive a doctrine of the Trinity from it. We have to, the reason we get, the way we get this doctrine is through these ecumenical creeds that came later. Uh -huh. Do you agree with Richard Swinburne on that or not? I guess I do not agree. Um, in fact, I think that we have to take all of these creedal statements and weigh them against scripture 
and that scripture's authority takes precedence over them. And there are certain things in the creed that I, I don't agree with because I don't think they're biblical. So with respect to the New Testament data, I think the New Testament clearly teaches that God the Father is not the Son, and that God the Son and God the Father are not the Spirit, uh, and yet that there are three persons that are each divine, that the Father is divine, the Son is divine, the Holy Spirit is divine. And that, to me, just is the essence of the doctrine of the Trinity. There are three divine persons, uh, and there is one God. All right, let me get to a few other questions here. So William Keller asks, if there are really three self-conscious persons, how does this not just become Craig's view? Oh, I, I guess he was asking about my view. Oh. Um, so... I, I want people to, I want you to be able to answer the yeah. question. I don't want to answer well, the question. I, I, was, I was thinking of that too. When you described your version of Ray's model, where you were saying you have these three persons who are the same object numerically, but so they're not identical. View, well, yeah, I say in my view, I'm still exploring. So I, yeah. you know, I, I don't claim to have all the answers, but as am I, Jordan. Yeah. Uh, so, we wouldn't want to say that the um, the statue is a part of the marble. The statue just is the marble, right? Yeah. I mean, it just, yeah. yeah. And so on your view, you have this, and I know you say it's like the part whole, but you're not saying it, it really is a part whole thing. I, I understand that, but I want to view, avoid this part whole language. I want to say you've got yeah. this one soul and the, just as the statue can fully be that soul, so can the uh, the pillar, so can the fountain. These things are numerically identical. They're not parts of one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a laudable um, ambition. And um, I think that the model that I come to in the end doesn't require you to think in terms of parts and wholes. The model that I finally arrive at is that there is a single spiritual substance who is endowed with three sets of rational faculties, each sufficient for personhood. So it's a tri-personal spiritual substance. And that doesn't say anything about parts and wholes. Maybe there aren't any um, undetached parts. Uh, so it's, it would be inappropriate to talk about parthood here. I, I think that that's not essential to the final view that I suggest. All right, that's helpful. So Justin Mooney asks, does the soul that is God instantiate the property of being a person? No, no. It's tripersonal. It instantiates... Um, unless you mean, I was taking him to mean exactly one person. It doesn't instantiate the problem being exactly one person, but it does instantiate the property of being personal, namely being tripersonal. All right, Joe, 27, thank you for your $5 super chat, super chat, Joe, asks, do the three sets of rational faculties have distinct wills? three wills within God. 
If so, doesn't this contradict Basil positing one divine will? Uh, I would say that there are three wills. I think that having a free will is essential to personhood. And so given that there are three persons, there would be three wills, just as there are three intellects, um, three centers of self-consciousness. Original Wynn Productions asks, how tenable is a relative identity theory? Uh, I talk about that in Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview. And even Peter Van Inwagen, who has defended this idea, in the end admits that it is not, a, a, there's no suitable application of it that he can show to the Trinity. It would be... Uh, something that would be ad hoc. Uh, so I think that it's it's not successful and hasn't gained a wide following. I'd refer folks to the discussion in Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview. Thank you, Oscar Lee, for your $15 super chat. Very generous. Does God being a trinity imply that the love two people have for a third is the most perfect kind of love? And if so, then wouldn't polyamory be acceptable? Oh, <laughs> um, I have not attempted to give arguments for the number of persons in the Trinity. I know some people have that somehow there being three persons is is best, and therefore God is necessarily three or tripersonal. I've not endorsed that kind of argument. Um, so I, I, I don't have any, uh, any ax to grind on, on, his, on the, the answer to that question about whether this is the most perfect kind of love. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I have seen the arguments to try and show that it, God must be tripersonal. I'm not compelled by those. Uh, yeah. They go in interesting directions, but there's more to look at there. Okay. Aaron Davis with a $5 super chat. Thank you, Aaron says, uh, hello, Bill. What is it on your model that unites the wills of the divine person, given that you argue elsewhere that wills do not proceed from natures? Well, I would say that it is in virtue of the uh, perfection of the divine persons, that they all will and know and love the same thing in perfect harmony. And here I think the Greek Orthodox doctrine of perichoresis, that there is a complete uh, interpenetration of love, knowledge, and will among the three persons of the Trinity is very helpful. It, it um, helps us to see why there is no conflict among the the three persons of the Trinity, they necessarily always act and think and love in tandem with each other. Justin Mooney had another question. What is the son? Is he a soul or a set of faculties or something else? Well, he's a person, right? He's a person. He's one of the persons that go to comprise the Trinity. As a person, is he a soul? Um, 
No, I don't think so, because otherwise then you would have three souls in God and you would have three gods. Okay, so he's on yeah, so on your model person, I know when we talked about the incarnation, person was you defined a person as a rational well, we talked about Apollinarius as a rational yeah. animal. Would yeah, how that was you a human person. Oh, well, I would say um, a person would be something that uh, essentially exemplifies properties like self-consciousness, intentionality, and freedom of the will. Anything that has those properties is a person, and only something that has those properties is a person. Okay, thank you. All right, so we are at the one hour mark. So uh, Dr. Greg Craig was uh, kind enough to agree to let me interview him for one hour. So there are more questions, but we'll need to, to stop there. Thank you very, very much, Dr. Craig, for coming on and letting me interview you. I really enjoyed My it. My pleasure. Thank you. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.